Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music today. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream this morning. This is Palm Sunday, Sunday morning, and we are in the book of Zechariah. So find uh, Zechariah almost to the last, next to the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, we are in chap two different chapters, chapter 9 and then chapter 11, for two thoughts that we have today. This is Palm Sunday and the beginning of the Passion Week of Christ, the week that he was crucified. And then uh, Sunday morning will be the day of his resurrection, which we will uh, celebrate and talk about next Sunday. In the New Testament, there are two quotations of things that happened during this week that were very important. One of them happens on Sunday morning, and that's what we're looking at in chapter 9. And then the other happens uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed. That's what we'll look at in chapter 11. In chapter 9, we see what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Let me read to you Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 4 and 5, Matthew will record, All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. And so Matthew almost quotes it verbatim, and John will uh, do the same thing. And when we turn to chapter 11, we're going to have that story of Judas being paid 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord. So in Matthew 27, in verses 3 through 5, we have these words. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See you to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. You know those words, of course, but uh, maybe you haven't seen the book of Zechariah for a while to realize that this is where these words come from. That triumphal entry, again, uh, on Sunday morning, uh, when people were uh, glad to see him, people were uh, happy that he was coming in, and, and they treated him like a king, and yet a few days later they will say, crucify him, crucify him, we'll not have this man to reign over us. Uh, so really a tragic week, of course, as we know. Now, I think that the picture is both in Zechariah and in the Gospels, of how Jesus will be received into the hearts of people, and sometimes gladly, sometimes falsely, sometimes truly. Sometimes people just go through the motions, and they don't really accept him as Savior. And other times, of course, they do. You remember that John recorded in the first chapter of his Gospel that the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You remember he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not. I mean, John's pretty specific that this happens quite a bit, and it happened to these Jews in the first century, and of course it happens to other people too. It's easy to pay lip service to Jesus, isn't it? 
I mean, just think of in, in, in the world in which we live with all the internet going on and all the television and all the news reports, 24-7 news and all of that, 24-7 religious broadcasting uh, for that matter, that it's easy to talk about Jesus, it's easy to talk about the scripture, but the question is, do you have a personal relationship, a personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, knowing God that way? Well, many deny even the need of a Savior, and they find out too late, don't they? After death, that didn't do them any good. So we want to look at these two uh, chapters, and you notice uh, that I have an outline that kind of divides them up. But let me give you a little bit of, of uh, understanding about this prophet Zechariah, if you will. He was, Zechariah was preaching in the late 500s, early 400s B.C. That is, the Jews had gone off to Babylon, and uh, they had been there for 70 years, and uh, now they were able to return and rebuild the city and the temple. And you remember Nehemiah and Ezra, and you remember the prophets uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all came back during that time to encourage the people, to get them to uh, build and, and do what God wanted them to do. In this book, the first eight chapters of the book have to do with all of the problems that were going on in that day. And so Zechariah is preaching to them about you know, their current sins, about their need to get to work and build, and all of those kinds of things in the first eight chapters. It's, it's a very historical uh, portion of the book. In chapters 9 through 11, he moves ahead to some prophecies that will happen in between the Testaments. So from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, we call them the 400 silent years. And he will give some of the history about what happened during that time. And those are the chapters we find our text in that will be used by the gospel writers as Jesus fulfills some of those words himself. But chapters 12 through 14 uh, are beautiful uh, chapters of things yet in the future. Millennial blessings. When Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom on the earth, when that happens, uh, this whole earth will be changed. Warren Wiersbe said of chapters 9 through 14, he said, These six chapters comprise one of the greatest concentrations of messianic truth found anywhere in Scripture. And, and it's one of the things about studying Zechariah and, and all of these minor prophets. They just pack these great truths into small books and small chapters. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to dig out all of those things. So he's going to do this, and he's going to give us two pictures, both of the Passion Week and then, of course, of the betrayal of Jesus. And I'm going to call these, here, here are people going through the motions of accepting Christ, and by the end of the week it becomes very obvious that they hadn't done that, at least most of them had not. So, if you will, look at, uh, look at these two outlines. We're, we're in chapter 9 first, and I'm going to talk about the shepherd being accepted on that Sunday morning when he rode into Jerusalem. And we see that in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. But in these two chapters, you see that in or verses, I mean, in verse 9, uh, you, you have that picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem during his first time on earth. 
But immediately in verse 10, you have a picture of his second coming, which is yet in our future, when he establishes his kingdom on the earth. And that's why I call it letter A, receiving or accepting of him in pretense, but secondly, in truth, when he comes and rules on this earth. Now, I, I gave you a little bit of that history, and it's interesting that in chapter 9, in the first eight verses, is a prophecy given by Zechariah of things that are going to happen about 200 years in his future, in the intertestament period. As a matter of fact, almost all commentators point out that this was fulfilled by Alexander the Great, that he came uh, into the land of Israel, and uh, you notice Tyre and Sidon is mentioned in verse 2 because the first thing Alexander did was destroy the, that uh, kingdom of Tyre and Sidon. And then he goes on down the coast and he's destroying the, the towns of the Philistines, Ascalon, Gaza, Ekron in verse 5, and even mentions the Philistines in verse 6. But then he comes to Jerusalem. I want to tell you a true story that I've read a number of times about Alexander and what happened. And we find these, some of them in the apocryphal books and some of them in other history books, but it's a true story that Alexander the Great in 333 to 332 B.C., so again, between the, the, the two testaments, and he's, he's conquering the world by the time he's 30 years old. He's got the most powerful army in the world, and uh, Greece is going to conquer Persia. You remember Daniel's four kingdoms? So Greece comes... And uh, the first thing they do is conquer the Persians and throw them out of power. Then they come down into the land of Israel to take care of all these smaller uh, kingdoms that are down there. So here comes Alexander with this huge army, successful, battle-hardened, and all the rest. And they, they take Tyre and Sidon, they take the Philistine cities, and they're on their way to Jerusalem to destroy it, to annihilate that, take people captive and all of that. Well, there was a high priest named Jadua in those days. And Jadua realized what was happening, and all the people did, because they were afraid, of course. And the high priest, Jadua, puts on his priestly robes and all this paraphernalia that he has with him, and he picks up the scroll of Daniel, and he walks the road toward Alexander. Alexander's coming from the north toward Jerusalem, and here comes Judea the priest in his priestly robes with the scribe or the scroll of Daniel under his arm. <laughs> and, and, and Alexander and all his army come to a stop because this priest is standing in the road. And the priest says, Alexander, I need to talk with you. I don't know his exact words, but he said, I need to show you. And Alexander said, okay. He opened the book of Daniel and showed him where a Jewish prophet named Daniel had prophesied of Alexander the Great and given details about what he's doing right now and what a great person he is, how he's this, these, the, the belly and uh, uh, thighs of silver and, and uh, he's this winged leopard. And uh, it so impressed Alexander that rather than coming and destroying Jerusalem, he came as a conquering hero and protected Jerusalem with his army. That's a true story. 
Well, that history of Alexander coming into the land goes through verse 8, and then you have verse 9. And at this point, the Holy Spirit is letting Zechariah the prophet say that there's a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar coming. There's, or, uh, I mean, uh, Alexander the Great, excuse me. There's a greater king than that who's going to rule this city more than Alexander. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, not riding on a white steed as Alexander did, but lowly riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem that way. And so we see this uh, coming king then from verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Now notice that I say here that uh, uh, verse 9, when we go to our New Testament, we read about the triumphal entry of Christ, and there was a lot of pretense going on. It's one of those odd things because we want to see Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We like to hear the hosannas. We like to see the palm leaves in his path. But I ask you, where were those people by the end of the week? In the same crowd that said crucify him. Where were these people in the upper room? They weren't there. Where were these people meeting in those houses when Jesus met with them on Sunday night? They're not there. In other words, they are giving lip service, a lot of them, to the Lord, but they're not truly believing in him. Now, when we go to those verses, as I read a few minutes ago in, in uh, 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 Matthew and also in, in uh, John, it's interesting that Sunday the Sunday of the triumphal entry, the Sunday before Jesus died, which would be like this Sunday, Palm Sunday, the next Sunday would be Easter, that that happens to be Nisan 10. We know that, the month of Nisan, day 10. The interesting thing about that is Daniel also gave a prophecy of 70 weeks, you remember? And that 69 of those weeks would come together first, and then there would be an unknown period of time, and then the 70th week, you know that. And we're in that in-between time. We're in that church age, so to speak. You can calculate to the day from when the decree was given by Artaxerxes to go build the city and when those days ended, because we know every year was a 360-day year. Uh, we, we know how many years it was, and we know when they started. And you know when it ended? Sunday morning of triumphal entry. The 69 weeks of Daniel end on this day. And we're told three things will happen then after that, some, and, and then the 70th week can come in the future. Number one, Messiah has to be cut off. And we know that happened on Thursday or Friday of that week when he was crucified. And then Jerusalem will have to be destroyed. We know that happened in 70 A.D. And then there will be wars to the end of the world, <laughs> which have been going on for 2,000 years. Everything like that has been fulfilled uh, for uh, the Lord to come again. So on that day, do you remember that they cried uh, Hosanna? Quoting Psalm 118, Hosanna means save us now or save now. Here are all these people and they're, they're, they're putting palm leaves uh, uh, on, the, on the ground and, and he's riding on this donkey. By the way, some uh, 
dignitaries and even, even uh, generals and so forth rode into town on donkeys. That wasn't all that unusual. But here he is as a king coming in, and they are saying, Hosanna, save us now. Do what uh, the uh, prophets say that you'll do. Save us now. And yet it didn't happen, did it? As a matter of fact, I was reading in John 12, 16, these things of him coming into the city, his disciples understood not. His various disciples didn't know the significance of what was happening. And then John goes on to say, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So if the disciples couldn't understand the gist of it, there's no doubt that many of the people couldn't also. And of course, as I said, later they say, crucify him, we'll not have this man to reign over us. And I say, and I'm trying to emphasize, that many people do the same thing, don't they? There's a verse at the end of Titus chapter 1, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being an abominable, disobedient, unto every good work, reprobate. That happens too often, folks. It happens in this world. We have so much religion. We have so much talk about Jesus. We have so much entertainment going on and all of that to where it's easy to have a false profession of faith. I think every person ought to check their own heart and know that they have received Christ as their Savior truly and not just in pretense. Well, it was, it's a great thing for Jesus to come to Jerusalem. Great thing for him to come to the end of his life. He's going to die for our sins, and then he's going to rise from the dead. But he goes through these motions to fulfill this verse so that uh, the people are aware that what they've said is not really in their heart. So, in pretense, but secondly, in verse 10, you can receive him in truth. And as you read this verse... You, you realize something interesting. This is very millennial. This is about the kingdom of God. And as someone said, the whole church age, the whole last 2,000 years, belongs between verse 9 and verse 10. How many times have we said those Old Testament Jews just didn't see this? They didn't see the gap in between. They didn't see this church age, other than between Daniel's 69th and 70th week, but how long is that? It didn't have to last 2,000 years, just a short time. And yet, the Jewish people this day look at verse 10, or verse 9, and don't believe Jesus, Jesus fulfilled that, and they look at verse 10 and don't believe that's ever going to happen either. How, how much unbelief is there? And this is their prophet. And they maybe attribute it just to Alexander the Great or somebody like that, but we know that Jesus was the one that verse 9 is talking about, and he's the one verse 10 is also talking about too. I want to, you, re, you remember Isaiah 9, 6, by the way. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and without a period in the sentence, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. First coming, second coming, and the sentence doesn't even stop. That's what's happening here. And this is very common in the prophecies of the Old Testament, mixing the first and second coming together and then seeing those things split apart by now 2,000 years. Very common. Uh, and, and by the way, in, in the Gospels as well. Notice in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. 
He is going to judge this world, and he is going to take people into account that need to be taken into account. The battle bow shall be cut off. Remember the prophet saying he'll beat his swords into plowshares and his spears into pruning hooks. I mean, the weapons of war he will bring to an end. Won't you be glad to see that? I mean, we live in a world where there's weapons of war like the world has never seen, and he will put an end to it all. He shall speak peace to the nations. Speaking peace to the nations. What wonderful words of these. Listen to Psalm 67, 4. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. There will be peace in this world. Uh, and he's the prince of peace, Isaiah also said. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Habakkuk 2.14, a very well-known verse. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do the waters cover the sea? <laughs> of course they do. And his glory and his peace and his dominion will cover this earth for a thousand years when he reigns on this earth. What a, what a great thing that is. Now, if we went on, in verses especially 11 through 14, we would see a couple more things. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And again in verse 12, remember, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. You know what that's speaking of? Resurrection. That when he comes, the prisoners of hope, those who have died, uh, will be resurrected. The blood of the covenant, some people debate, some people make that the Abrahamic covenant, maybe the Mosaic covenant, I think also the new covenant. Remember, uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, that we say this cup is the New Testament in my blood. And so if this is the last week of his life, we have it at least in verse 9, uh, why not that? But because of his covenant with this nation and with his people, even those that have died will be resurrected and live in this great kingdom of God that he's talking about. And verse 14, and the Lord will be seen over them. Jesus Christ will reign. The one who comes into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, the one who brings peace to the earth will reign on this earth. And we know Jesus will reign for a thousand years. And yet people rejected him. And they, they had these words in their Bible. They had these words by their own prophet. And here Jesus comes and fulfills these things and hundreds more just like them. And then they can still say, we don't believe that you're the Son of God. We don't believe that you're really the Messiah. But folks, how many people do that today? Not just the Jewish people, all people. Hear messages, hear things. Go to church all their life, I suppose and yet never come to know the Lord as Savior? I was reminded of this verse in Hebrews 10, and verse 26 says, If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifices for sin. If we reject this sacrifice, if we reject the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no other sacrifice. No one else shed their blood for you. No one else could have shed their blood for you. No one else rose from the dead, but this man did. And if you, re if you willfully 
reject that, you reject every hope that you have of eternal life. And then in verse 29 of, of Hebrews 10, it says, how much more or how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy of those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? Think of what, how people talk about, uh, talk about the, the Lord these days and talk about uh, the Christianity these days and so forth. It, it's a terrible thing, really, when you think about it. As a matter of fact, I read, I read a, a quote um, that I, I have it here somewhere. I don't know. Um, I, re I read this quote this morning that David Hawkins, Stephen Hawkins, uh, said, you know, religion is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. And a pastor responded to him and said, atheism is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. <laughs> and isn't that the truth? And yet, uh, today we have those criticizing and the rest Christianity, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they're, they're criticizing the light, criticizing the one hope of salvation that they have. Go with me to the second thought then. So now let's, let's turn a page in your Bible to chapter 11, and now we have this story here uh, that Judas is going to fulfill. In verse 12 of chapter 11, then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said, Throw it to the potter, that princely price that's set on me. That's kind of a, a, you know, a little bit of a rub there. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, in, these, in this chapter, uh, Zechariah is asked by God to be the shepherd to the children of Israel. Remember that they, the, these are the remnant who came back from Babylon, and they're there in Jerusalem, kind of a minority of people, just whoever could come back. They're rebuilding the temple and, and the city, and these prophets like Haggai and Malachi and, and uh, these men of God, they are trying to shepherd the people. And so God asks him to be a shepherd. You notice, for example, in verse 7, so I fed the flock for slaughter in particular the poor of the flock. I took myself two staffs. You know that a shepherd has a, has a staff, right? A rod and a staff. I called the one beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. He's, he's asked to do that as the prophet, and he's acting like a shepherd here. One is, is uh, the beautiful protection that the shepherd offers. The bond is we keep this flock together. We keep everyone together. And so he's trying to do that. Now, some people see in verse 8, I dismissed three shepherds in one month. So evidently, in his day, uh, Zechariah uh, got rid of some of the false shepherds. Those who see, of course, a prophecy of Jesus Christ here uh, see that as perhaps in himself, prophet, priest, and king. In the Lord himself are three of the offices that Israel had that's supposed to bring peace and, and, and uh, 
good to the people, prophet, priest, and king. And what did they do? In one day, they destroyed he who is prophet, priest, and king. So perhaps that, that's what that means also. Now, I call verse 12 in chapter 11 the offer because you have here, first of all, Zechariah saying, okay, I've shepherded you. I, I'm trying to do what is best for you. Pay me what you think I'm worth, so to speak. That would be a natural thing to do. Pay me what you think I'm worth to shepherd you as a flock. And what do they do? They insult him. They, sell, they give him 30 pieces of silver. And, and then the Lord says, cast it to the potter. He cast it into the, the Lord's house for the potter. But you know what that means? The, the potter, you have to understand, was the poorest of the people. He dealt in pieces of pottery, potsherds. He dealt in, in those, those vessels. Of course, people had to have them. We, we look at pottery today, and we think, boy, what a wonderful thing it is. You just got to understand, this is one of the poor people, and his house was always a mess. <laughs> his house was full of, of uh, junk all the time. If I tried to make pottery, I'm sure my house would, would look exactly like that. It looks bad enough with what I try to make anyway. So throw it into the potter's house and leave it for the potter. He needs it. 30 pieces of silver, do you know where they get that term? you know where it comes from? It comes from Exodus 21, 32. I, I imagine if you have a cross-reference Bible, you have that verse there somewhere. Exodus 21, 32. If the ox gores a male or female servant, stop there and say, what does that mean? An ox gets out of control, an oxen with horns, and he wounds a servant, maybe not to death, but to where they're incapacitated for a while. He shall give to their master 30 pieces of silver, and the ox has to be stoned or killed. Kill that oxen if he does something like that. In other words, folks, 30 pieces of silver is worth a wounded slave that can't work anymore. That's what 30 pieces of silver is worth. And so what did they say to Zechariah as the prophet who's trying to shepherd them? 30 pieces of silver. You're not worth any more than a wounded slave as far as we're concerned. Now, of course, we take that, don't we, and we transfer it forth to this last week of Christ's life, and we see Jesus coming to into Israel, offering himself as the king of the Jews. Now, we're studying the book of Matthew on Wednesday night. We've already been talking about in the early chapters of that book how that Jesus offered himself as the king to the Jewish nation in his first coming. But he came unto his own, his own received him not. And so here is your king that can set up your kingdom and is he really going to deliver them from the Romans? Yeah, from the Romans and everyone else. Here's your king. And what did they say to their king? We'll sell you for 30 pieces of silver, as far as we're concerned. So let me, uh, let me turn back to Judas for a minute. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, there it says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, 
went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Maybe there's no more sad verses than that in the Bible. The Son of God who came to this earth to save us, the sinless Son of God who can pay the price for our sins, how much does that cost? What does it cost to pay for the sins of the world? It costs the life of the Son of God. And those who are being bought, and those who, who have a soul that needs to be redeemed, say, I don't think it's worth a gourd slave. That's what I think. And this offer that he was making to them was received in such a way. Think, think of this, folks. Judas, Judas was a professing believer. Judas was like those guys at, on Sunday morning that said, Hosanna, save us now, but they didn't mean it. How do I know that? Well, Judas was one of the disciples, right? Jesus chose him as a disciple. Jesus knew he wasn't a believer, but he chose him. How could he choose him? Because he had John's baptism. We're told in Acts chapter 1, all of the apostles had to be baptized by John. We go back to John, and what do we find from John? Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, or I'm not going to baptize you. Judas comes forward with a testimony of some kind. Of, of faith in God, and John baptizes him. And where did he come from? Iscariot, uh, Judith of Kerioth, a Jewish town, no doubt raised by Jewish parents and going to the temple and going to the feast days and all that. In other words, he had a pedigree that no one questioned. And no one knew but Jesus that he really wasn't a believer. He preached. He worked miracles. He went out with the, with the 12, he went out with the 70, he did all of those things, and yet we come to the end here, and he sells the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Can it happen? Yes, it can. Without true faith, without real faith, who knows that you won't do this very thing by the end of your life? Who knows that you don't have uh, this kind of faith? I hope that you know, I hope that you don't. Judas must have been thinking, you know, uh, he's about to die, and I'm going to be left with nothing. I might as well get something out of this. I might as well profit from my religion somehow. And if we don't capture him and it doesn't work and I don't get it, I've not lost anything. But if it does, if he's captured, uh, then I get 30 pieces of silver. You remember that he was the treasurer and had the bag. Remember that? And it says he, he took away what was in the bag, meaning probably he dipped into the till himself. He, he had that kind of uh, uh, interest in, in money anyway. So here's the offer in verse 12. But the rejection of it comes in verse 13. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. That princely price, again, is a way of kind of mocking it a little bit. It's really not a princely price. It's really not a price for the Messiah himself. And so the 30 pieces of silver was there. Let me go back to Matthew 27 one more time, if you will. 
In 20, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 3, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. Remember that word remorseful for a minute. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Remember them as the religious people of the day, the religious leaders, the preachers, the teachers, the scribes. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Sounds like a pretty good confession there. And they said, what is that to us? See you to it. We don't care. We're only the religious leaders. We're only the preachers and the teachers here. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. Why? Because that's what Zechariah said he would do. And went out and hanged himself. You know the story. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury. Oh, now they're going to say it's not lawful. <laughs> now they're going to follow the word of God because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and brought with them the potter, bought with them the potter's field. Interesting. Why did they buy a potter's field? To fulfill Zechariah chapter 11, of course to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field was spoken by the prophet, saying they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they had, uh, the children of Israel had priced. Ma uh, Matthew puts that parenthesis in there. Then he says, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let me read you also Acts chapter 1, where they're, they're having to select the, the uh, Matthias as the follow-up to Judas because Judas now is gone. Now this man, he says, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his entrails gushed out, speaking of his hanging and death. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field where he died is called in their language Alkadama. Alkaldama, that is the field of blood. Why? Because Zechariah said that's what it would be called. And so you see from the, these couple small verses here what happened to someone who rejected the very Messiah. And folks, it's what happens today when people reject him. Now, I told you to remember that word remorseful in Matthew 27. It's interesting. He was remorseful. He had kind of second thoughts. He thought, maybe I've done something wrong here. I, I've betrayed innocent blood. Was that his conversion? Obviously not, because we know he wasn't saved. Remorseful is a word that means to be annoyed by the circumstances. It didn't quite work out the way I thought. It's not the word repentance. It's not the word change of mind. It's not the change of heart. I'm just remorseful. Didn't quite, didn't quite work out the way I thought. How terrible is that? And then you have the chief priest saying, well, it's not lawful for us to do this, or, or what is that to us? You take care of it any way you want to. The leaders of the nation, how terrible it would be in their day or in ours for people who have all of these advantages of having the Word of God, being around the Son of God in their day, and, ha and having all of the, the, the advantages of being in God's house and yet get to the end of their life and be like this and not even have true conversion. 
Do you remember Esau? The Bible speaks about Esau's faith also in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many people are defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Very similar to Judas, huh? For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. How sad if a person gets to that spot at that point in their life, professing but not possessing eternal life. So I think many today are paying lip service to the Lord on this Passion Week. And for this next week, maybe today and throughout this week, how many lips will say, Hosanna, save us now, that don't have eternal life? Sad, isn't it? We ought to, every individual of us ought to, know for sure that we have eternal life and that it shows in our life and that we know where we're going when we die. So the death, burial, and resurrection was prophesied, was carried out by the Son of God. Somebody said of the crucifixion, Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Friday looks like a dark day. Friday looks like the day of rejection. But Sunday will come, and it's a day of resurrection. It's the day of life. And remember this, folks. Judas is in hell right now. Is that not true? He is in hell suffering right now. How long has he been there? 2,000 years? And there's no end in sight. And no possible end in sight. 30 pieces of silver, and he's been in hell 2,000 years, and so have those chief priests and scribes, and no end in sight. There were two thieves hanging on two crosses beside on each side of Jesus, ready to go out into eternity in a matter of hours or minutes, ready to die. One of them says... This is the Son of God. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The other one says, he deserves to die like all the rest of us deserve it. That one thief has been in heaven 2,000 years. And time has just begun. And he'll be there eternally. That other thief has been in hell for a moment's decision before he died, having the opportunity to change, and he refused it. And he's been there 2,000 years, and it isn't going to change. You know, Newton wrote that song, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And if we've been in hell for 10,000 years, then no way out and no way to go back. And so, folks, it's it's important for us to know these things and to know we have eternal life and to know for sure that we are saved and know the Son of God. I want you to stand with me, if you will, and, and pray with me as we think about these verses and then sing a song of invitation so that we can search our hearts and respond the way God wants us to respond. Let's pray together. Father, now... 
the Passion Week and the death of Christ, the betrayal of the Son of God, is the darkest chapter in earth's history. And Father, we're saddened, even by Judas and by others who refuse the gift of eternal life, when it's so welcome and so easy and God invites us to come. Thank you for those who have. So, Father, we live in a day far removed from that, we know. But there are scoffers today, and there are those who laugh at it today even, who wouldn't even give 30 pieces of silver for the price of the Son of God. So, Father, I pray that, throughout, that today and throughout this week and to Easter Sunday, that there would be many souls saved in this world because of the preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that there's someone within the sound of my voice that doesn't know and doesn't know Christ as Savior, that they would come to him today. So I pray, Father, you'd bless our hearts as we sing and we think about these things and we open our hearts to you. I pray you'd have your will and your way. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our invitation, as I often say, is open as we sing. I'm here at the front, but even as we close the service and others are leaving, I'm still here. If you have a need, you see me, and uh, let's take the word of God and, and make sure that things are right with him. Gordon's going to come and lead us in the song.